0: Hello, hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy
1: and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous.
0: This week, we welcome Scott Horowitz, who is a music therapist and an approved clinical supervisor.
1: Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, a podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone who is in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had.
0: I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I love cranberry sauce in a
1: can. I think people are more brave to say that out loud. I agree. I, I think cranberry sauce in a can is good. I love I it. Cranberry form. Delicious. <laughs> and I'm we're Sarah getting we're
0: getting some uh some no's.
1: <laughs> no problem. I mean, I, I understand. I, I like understand. other cranberry
0: sauce too. I just also like the can.
1: Don't defend your cranberry sauce opinion. You're good. Have have it and hold it proud. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I'm Sarah, as I also bully you, <laughs> <And> I'm Sarah. <laughs> an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a cishet white female. My pronouns are she, her. And this holiday season, I'm giving myself the gift of boundaries. Beautiful. Unshakable, firm boundaries. Love it. Love it.
0: Um, a boundary my family has is always having the cranberry <laughs> sauce so in a can for me on the table
1: like that's nice that's a nice
0: thing to be known for my dad also makes like homemade cranberry sauce which is also very good Mm -hmm. and I love that as well um you know you have to eat it really fast because it goes bad really fast but um I also enjoy the can and
1: I'll just eat it out of the can like jello oh so good I like when people uh, put it out on the table and make no efforts to make it look like it wasn't from a can and you can just still see the there's, can rivet.
0: There's no, I mean, there's no way, I guess you could cut it. Yes, <laughs> there certainly like... could. <laughs> but I just love to take a little spoonful out of it. It's the perfect consistency. It's beautiful.
1: That's very nice. Yeah. I think I think that that's very endearing. And I like that your family knows you for that and they do that for you. Yeah. Shame free or shame with, who knows?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm um, excited to eat. Yeah. Well, this is recording.
1: This is gonna be released after. Um after after tea giving. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's all right. We still have plenty of holidays that could involve cranberries and you know, whatever form they're in. I'll eat it during Christmas too, so yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah. Um anyway. So yeah, what a fun. What a week it's been, mm. you know, personally and professionally. And <laughs> I, I think I had the
0: opposite professional week of you. Everybody canceled. I canceled. Clients
1: canceled. Yeah, it's. I love a good week when everybody cancels or no one does, and you know, your consistency is <laughs> consistency is never really to be expected. But that's that's part of the field we're in, and. I think I'm feeling a little better at rolling with those rolling with those changes. That's great. I still got to complain about it on the podcast a little bit, but of course. On a serious note, here I go. <laughs> um, with the with what has we've talked about this in the beginning of our episodes, right? especially mm-hmm. with like Raquel in episode one. Look back at episode one, everybody. It's a good one. Um, talking about the importance of allowing your clients to be you know, in whatever state they need to be emotionally, um, physically, sometimes I've had clients that have said, you know, I don't feel comfortable crying, I'm just gonna turn the camera off for a minute and kind of allowing them to have that space from time to time. I, With what has been in the news recently about mm. uh, some certain jury verdicts, I encourage therapists to challenge your own discomfort of talking about politics and um, human rights in the news. I think it can be so rewarding and scary for us to do that. Um, But that's kind of what we got into the field. We challenge, we deal with things that are rewarding and scary all the time. So why not expand your horizons a little bit? I just felt it was very important to say that today um, because I think we can very easily shy away from letting our clients be real with that. Joanne, I think I shared that with you that um, in the beginning of the pandemic, I had disclosed to my old therapist that you know the feelings I had and she met it with well if you're going to make it political and I never talked about it again and then slowly shortly after that stopped seeing her no please do not please do not let your clients you can have judgments keep them hold them to yourself unless it's clinically important to bring up but and if you need supervision on it like search out supervision if it feels uncomfortable it's so okay to admit that you're uncomfortable with it and that you're not good at that or it's not a strength you have yet. We're all bad at things before we get good at things. Yeah. So yeah, any uh, oddly serious things you want to bring up? No, <laughs> I think I'm good. Cool. I have, I I have feel... clean
0: floors. <laughs>
1: Great. I'm all good. <laughs> clean floors. Um, proverbial floors for the podcast are clean. I never make mistakes. <laughs> No, that you're perfect. I'm perfect just the way I am. And uh literal floors are not because cats should. Yeah. But yeah. Cool. All I right. don't know if this happens for your for your animals, Joanna, but for your animal, but you feel like a tumbleweed situation with pets. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: It's pretty gnarly under the bed. Yeah, I'm not happy about it. Okay. Yeah. That's where my mind and heart are. <laughs> <laughs> We'll stay tuned after the break as we uh, dive into our lesson.
1: Time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good or bad, in order to give context for the field that our interviewee works in. Today, our sources include a brief summary of supervision models by Kendra L. Smith, PhD, LPC, ACS, wikipedia.org, as always, and a history and traditions of clinical supervision by Jane Speedy. No trigger warnings today, so listen at your leisure. We are going to start with the history of clinical supervision. Two early and significant books that discuss clinical supervision are entitled Social Work Supervision by Munson, 1979, and another called Supervision in Social Work by Kudushin and Harkness in 1976. Kudushin and Harkness point out that prior to the 1920s, the literature that cited supervision meant something completely different than what we now associate with the noun. The first text about social work supervision was published in 1904 and was called Supervision in Education and Charity by Jeffrey Brackett. Brackett's book was about the supervision of institutions of welfare organizations. Supervision was defined as the control and coordination function of State Board of Supervisors, State Board of Charities, or a State Board of Control. Very social- different than yeah, how we think of it today.
0: Social work apparently had a had a hand in administrative supervision long before the texts on it were published by the American Counseling Association. More, interest, more interestingly, supervision seemed to move from an administrative focus to direct supervision, taking on the meaning and action of helping the social worker develop practice, knowledge, and skills, and providing emotional support to the person in the social work role. Social work has long... Social work has a long and proud tradition of providing supervision to those in the trenches rather than doctoral students with literature that is equally rich and tracks issues common to every population. Now talking about clinical supervision today, supervision is used in counseling, psychotherapy, and other mental health disciplines, as well as many other professions engaged in working with people. Supervision is a replacement instead of formal observation delivering evidence about the skills of the supervised
1: practitioners. It consists of the practitioner meeting regularly with another professional, not necessarily older or more senior, but normally with training and skills of supervision to discuss casework and other professional issues in an instructed way. It is often known as clinical or counseling supervision. The purpose is to assist the practitioner to learn from their experience and progress in expertise as well as to ensure good service to the client or the patient. Learning shall be applied to planning work as well as diagnostic work and therapeutic work. Clinical supervision for mental health professionals started out much like quote, apprenticeships in other fields. That is a student slash apprentice with minimal skill or knowledge would learn the work of observing, assisting and receiving feedback from an accomplished member of the same field. It is believed that because the master was quite good at the same work, they would be equally good at teaching or supervising. This is not always the case, which I think every therapist has learned that mm-hmm. just because somebody has more skill or practice than you does not mean they are maybe good at teaching it to you. Definitely. That's why we have yeah. the supervision uh, certification. Also, the whole time I was putting this lesson together, I kept typing apprenticeship and I kept thinking of Sorcerer's Apprentice. So, mm. Yeah.
0: I feel like that's okay. kind of
1: a holiday movie to me. I don't know why.
0: Anyway, uh, today we've realized that though clinical supervision and counseling have much in common, for example, the ability to engage in an interpersonal relationship. This means that a, quote, master clinician may not always be a, quote, master supervisor without the addition of training and competency in supervisory knowledge and skills. Furthermore, the concept of master-apprentice supervision evokes a hierarchy of power that favors the master as the authority a dynamic that is not supported in today's literature on supervision. It is also documented that clinical knowledge skills are not as easily transferable as the master apprentice model implies. Observing experienced clinicians at work is without question a useful training tool, but is not sufficient to help students develop the skills necessary to become skilled clinicians themselves. Development is facilitated when the supervisee engages in reflection on the counseling work and relationship, as well as the supervision itself. Thus, clinical supervision is now recognized as a complex exchange between supervisor and supervisee with supervisory models slash theories developed to provide a frame for it.
1: Joanne, I think you'd agree that having a good supervisor can definitely make or break an experience in a clinical job. For sure. Yep.
0: For sure. All right. right. We'll stay tuned after the break as we uh, talk to Scott for our interview portion of the show. I know what I'm talking about. Nice. <laughs> All righty, welcome back. Scott Horowitz, MA, MTBC, LPC, ACS, is an assistant clinical professor and director of field education and continuing education at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Woo! Scott is a board certified music therapist, licensed professional counselor in Pennsylvania, and an approved clinical supervisor. Scott is also a musician, performing primarily on alto saxophone, a husband and a father to three beautiful children. Scott has been practicing as a music therapist since 2007, and as a licensed professional counselor since 2012. He has practiced clinically in a variety of settings, serving a wide range of individuals, including children and adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities, individuals with physical disabilities, those living with mental health challenges, and older adults. Scott also is passionate about clinical supervision and supports both students and professionals in their ongoing development as therapists. Scott has presented regionally and nationally on a number of topics related to music therapy practice, Clinical supervision, cultural humility, improvisation, and child development. Scott's recently published works include focus on a collaborative method for trauma stewardship in creative arts therapies, cultural humility in music therapy supervision, and the role of supervision in music therapy research teams. Outside of his professional life, Scott enjoys spending time with his family and close friends, cooking and enjoying the restaurant scene in Philadelphia, playing music and going to concerts. Welcome, Scott.
2: Thank you. Very happy to be here with you both.
0: I also enjoy the restaurant scene in
1: Philadelphia.
2: (laughs) I think we're a little spoiled in Philadelphia. We
1: really are. (laughs) It's a very good scene. I agree.
2: I go other places and eat and I'm like, "Mm, this is good, but not quite as good.
0: Yeah. There's not like a million really fantastic places. (laughs) All
1: right, Scott, tell us a little bit about the work that you do.
2: Sure. Um, So, as you read in my bio, I am on the faculty at Drexel University in our Creative Arts Therapies department, which includes our music therapy and counseling program, along with our art therapy and counseling and dance movement therapy and counseling um, master's programs, as well as a PhD program in creative arts therapies. So, uh, there I am, um, I teach in the music therapy program and um, also. Coordinate all of the field experiences, so what we call practicum and internship in our programs, but basically the students getting out into the, the real world experiences. Um, uh, across all three of our masters programs so interfacing with a lot of different sites and supervisors and trying to make some good matches there. Um, as well as coordinating continuing education, um, which has a nice overlap too in the way we, we kind of nurture our community and give back and try to support their ongoing growth and development. Um, And then I also maintain a small um, private practice for clinical supervision. I don't have any private practice music therapy or therapy clients at the moment, um, but sometimes do that as well.
1: Cool.
0: I know before we totally get started, I know you said you had something to say about cranberry sauce. I'm asking you that question now.
2: Well, I I have to disagree, (laughs) I I will, I I am not a fan of canned cranberry sauce. I used to think when I was a kid, I didn't like cranberry sauce until I discovered there were other options to the canned version. But that being said, my sister, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but when she was um, loved canned cranberry sauce. So sounds like similar to your family. In addition to homemade, we would always have canned cranberry sauce too for her. So yeah. I can I can get behind that, but okay. don't endorse it myself.
0: Okay. <laughs> and like, yeah, my dad goes through making this whole cranberry sauce and I love it and it's so good. I just like both.
2: <laughs> it's also really simple. Like that's the other thing. Like I think, you know, cans always easy, but making homemade cranberry sauce is actually really easy too. It's like the easiest yeah. thing on the menu.
0: Yeah. Anyway. So sorry I, to I do I encourage know.
2: people, I encourage people <laughs> to try both.
0: This is the cranberry sauce question. <laughs> Hot take. Yeah. Um, how has the pandemic affected your job day to day, I imagine, pretty intensely?
2: Yeah, a lot of ways for sure, as it has for for most people. I think, you know, one thing that struck me right away when like the whole world was kind of shutting down there were a couple industries that decided they didn't need to shut down or felt, you know, we can just keep going. And, and for some reason, education, especially higher education in particular was one of those industries. They just said, well, we'll pivot online, online education already exists. So just do it. Um, and yet the majority of us had never taught online. So from, you know, a baseline of just the technology involved, which, you know, wasn't a large leap for me cause I'm, you know, relatively tech savvy. Um, but you know, different, different ways of delivering educational experiences online is very different. And then you layer on top of that the type of teaching that I do within music therapy education and counseling. And I, you know, I, I love the classes that I teach and I, I partially love them because they are highly experiential classes, which are based in music making in groups and with other people and in real time. And all of that gets compromised as soon as we move online. Um, So there was a whole big learning curve and um, figuring out, like on the fly, how to make things work, how to adapt. We got like, I think they gave us like an extra week before the (laughs) the quarter started. They postponed it a week to let us pivot, and um, you know, so there was a a lot of learning in that week, but a lot more learning across the quarter. And you know, I just tried to be transparent with students too and tell them we're in a new environment. This is not going to be less than, but it is going to be different. And we're going to, some of it, I know what I'm doing. And some of it, we're going to figure out together um, and learn some cool things along the way for sure. And then, you know, along with that, understanding telehealth practice, which was not a big part of our education model, but, you know, now is there and and will stay because it's not, not going to go away. Um, and then on the other side of my job, in terms of, coordinating field education, that was a yeah. huge shift. Sites mm-hmm. were shutting down, of course, or not letting outside people in. Um, we did a lot of collaborating with other local programs to just share information, share resources, figure out how we were all each navigating that aspect of clinical training uh, through, through the early stages of the pandemic and then ongoing, you know, trying to find sites for our students to go to and have some in telehealth experiences, some in in-person experiences, some in hybrid, And just a lot of coordination, you know, it's always hard making sure we have enough sites and good quality learning opportunities, but that obviously got a lot harder in the last couple of years and and continues to be a challenge, Um, but I think as sites are figuring out what works for them. They're yeah. kind of more open to integrating students back in. But I also really was observing the burden placed on clinicians throughout the pandemic. Cause that was the other industry that decided we didn't need to shut down or needed to continue <laughs> also for the well-being of others. Um, and was just like witnessing the immense through both that part of my work and my clinical supervision um, professionally, just witnessing like the burden that was placed on mental health professionals who were serving as frontline workers, but weren't really being talked about or given the resources or support that all the other frontline work, the medical frontline workers, were given. And granted, their jobs were very, very, and continue to be very, very important. I'm not saying it's not, but equally so as the mental health workers and the, the, the just amount of um, burnout and and taxing of mental health workers that I saw. So, you know getting, asking them, asking of them when they're in that state felt really hard, um, considering putting students there in a learning environment that's really stressed and taxing felt hard. Um, so all of that was difficult. And all of it, while also working from home with two young kids yeah. who are trying to navigate not being in school and wanting my attention or being in online school and needing support. And yeah, it was a lot. It's been a lot. And we're back in person this fall with our classrooms, so that's nice. But it's it's a different experience too with with masks. It was neat. It was both neat and very confusing returning, because here were all these students that I knew all of last year for a year now, but I only knew them by their face or you know shoulders up. Um, and then we came in person, and I could no longer see their face. How I could identify them and only see the rest of them which of course was nice to be with whole people, but uh, I had to sort of like relearn how to identify these people that I had already known for a year.
0: Yeah. So I, I think I had gotten some like new, you know, like when I was working in person, like new clinicians and like, you don't even know what they look, you don't know, like basically don't know what they look like except for on like meetings, you know, and you're like, Oh, that's what you look like. Cause like, mm-hmm. I've never seen you without a mask before.
2: I just of another piece that came in the mix which like i i somehow became the de facto person in charge of ppe for our department oh, no. um, making making orders making students and it partially made sense because they needed some of them needed to provide for that for going into their practicum and internship but it was also like what do we need for classes what is the college that we're in requiring what are set and it was just like something i had no experience in as most people (laughs) didn't in figuring out what type of ppe we need and what kind of budget we need for that and all of that so that was just like an extra layer that got lumped in on top of everything else too
1: yeah scott i'm curious sorry sorry. scott i'm curious about the like the intimacy and the connection and like the vulnerability Uh, let me start over when i Mm -hmm. switched to telehealth full-time I was doing it part-time for a little bit but when I had to do it full-time I remember being so pleasantly surprised I could still maintain this kind of connection that I could have with people face to face which is so nice and rewarding and it feels good to let people know that that that's still accessible so I'm remembering our time at Drexel when we were able to have that connection with the people in our cohort and we were making music together how do you think that transferred?
2: It was a a big challenge, it was something the students spoke to a lot, like feeling disconnected from one another, disconnected from life, Um, a a lot of disconnection was happening, I mean, uh, to everybody, a lot of isolation. Um, But that was definitely something that got talked about a lot and we were observing as faculty and staff and trying to find ways to create connection trying to be intentional about how we do that within a zoom environment. Sometimes using our arts mediums as a great way of doing that, um, encouraging sometimes assignments of like partner work where you're getting on Zoom and doing some practicing of some skills together, different ways. But you also made me think of another level of intimacy that occurred that never does occur and never will probably should in in in-person learning, and that is that I was students were attending class from their bedrooms and other private places in their home, their living room with their pets and loved ones around. And just like, you know, I was seeing parts of their lives, parts of their home environment that like, I would never expect to see. I don't expect a student to show me their bedroom and, you know, their partner in the living room and their cat walking across the keyboard. And yet all of that was on display. And, you know, students had no choice. A lot of them, they live in small apartments. Their only space where they could attend class was from their bedroom. So that was like definitely a different, you know, just something, a different experience, a different layer, something I was very mindful of, you know, especially in terms of like requiring or not, which I didn't require students to have their cameras on. um, And for various reasons, they may have have needed to have them off. Mm -hmm. But yeah, a lot of those little nuances that like we don't even need to think about when we just all show up in the classroom space together. It was, you know, just to even acknowledge that, I think, you know, meant a lot to students to be able to say, yeah, I know you're in a private space right now. And if you don't want that to be on display, not only to me, but all their peers as well. Um, that was a different intimacy <laughs> than what we have even in, in the classroom.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's such a good point. I, I I thought about that with clients being kind of like, okay, let me bring you into this, you know, because the work home life balance is not as separate as like your your personal life and your therapy experience like it's so different but yeah education and academia that's 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 mm-hmm. a tough one it's a really good
2: yeah one. and a student i mean we were talking about in supervision just this week in group supervision for a student who's still doing telehealth and having sessions from home and talking about the difficulty for him in separating from the work when he's doing the work at home um, and, and encountering these intense things. And and for me, my version of that sort of was no transition time. I would finish uh-huh. teaching a class, and maybe even before I finished the teaching teaching the class, one of the children was at my side wanting my attention, <laughs> and I didn't even get And we might have been talking about something a little heavy in class, and I didn't have any time to, like, transition, you know, ride the train or hop in the car, make my commute, which, like, I never thought I would miss a commute, but <laughs> yeah. I missed I miss that aspect of the commute, the like breather, the alone time, the transition time. Um, so that's been another, and it continues to be, especially I think for those working in telehealth, like making sure that you are setting up some new rituals to help you separate from what's coming up in sessions for you and, and for the clients.
0: Yeah. It's, it's super okay. tough. Cause I used to have like a whole, like I take my badge off, you know, I like change my clothes when I come home, but like it's, it's so much different with teletherapy because it's like, oh, now I'm in the hallway when I left and like, that's it.
2: Yeah, and of course there's pros too. I won't say it's all negative. Yeah, like, I
0: mean like, it you know? like I'm home, right? <laughs> yeah. right? I'm already
2: home, I don't need to spend that extra hour. If I decide somewhere in the middle of the day, I wanna close my eyes for a few minutes and then work some other time, I can do that differently than at the office. Um, but yeah, definitely challenges.
0: I will say that uh, pandemic commuting was fantastic. <laughs> like the early, early pandemic, no cars. It was like a 15 minute drive. It was beautiful. Um, I also wanted to say that for clinicians, especially who work for an agency, I worked for like a mental health hospital, look into uh, hero discounts. If you were working, I don't know if they still offer them, but I was able to get one when our air conditioning failed in our house. And I like, couldn't, it was like the middle of the summer um And I was able to get a discount at a hotel. So just look into it and see if if you're offered because you've also been working very hard.
1: Good tip, good tip. I Yeah, I'm not to harp on this too much, but I totally hear you, Scott, about the not getting as many like high fives. I mean, I think it's like so pandering how much we were, you know, thanking frontline medical workers while also being like, oh, well, you got to do it anyway. So here's your here's your Facebook post or here's your banner in the neighborhood. Like we should definitely be offering more, but I'd like a little bit of pandering too. <laughs> I'd like mm-hmm. a little bit of that, like uh, self-service. Well, I'm happy I, with that.
2: I, I think it's also reflective of, you know, the larger ill that is our, our healthcare system and how mental health care is viewed and stigmatized and not valued and not supported financially and otherwise. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of things sort of, that already existed, got magnified through the pandemic, including, of course, social injustices and uh, racial inequities and health inequities. And I think, you know, the mental health care system and and the way it operates within the broader health care system was another one of those pieces, because, um, of course, the mental health needs of the country and the world really, like, you know, ballooned going through a, a pandemic and going through the social um unrest and issues that that bubbled up and, and continue to be important uh right now it's just like there's immense mental health need and yet you know our mental health system in america and healthcare system hasn't really elevated it to that priority of all you know other forms of health care
1: how do you think your personality is represented in the work that you do
2: hmm i I strive for authenticity as a therapist, as a supervisor and as an educator. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean I don't have boundaries and it doesn't mean I don't you know sometimes assume professional professionalism roles. Um, but I try to bring myself to everything I do. And, um, you know, I'm not a real formal kind of guy. I don't I'm not like a suit and tie kind of person. I'm kind of laid back in general. Um, and am like friendly and gregarious, which also, you know, of course made the pandemic uh, hard cause I wasn't with people um, outside of my my family. Um, so I think though, um, I think the qualities of my personality lend themselves to being a very relational person and being pretty good at developing relationships and nurturing and fostering relationships and, um, I see that as the through line of kind of all of my work. And um, I think I am i try to be approachable and and try to be friendly and try to have a sense of humor about things too. Like we do, I think that's really important also. Like we do really serious, really deep work. And sometimes it can be funny and sometimes we can laugh at ourselves. And sometimes, you know, we can laugh at something that occurred between us and another person. And so I try to bring humor in. And, and levity where, you know, where appropriate, um, not indiscriminately, but um, and appropriate is a loaded word. I tried not to use it too much because that's very subjective and relative, but, uh, you know, where I think it can fit and be of benefit, I will, I will bring humor in. So I think, yeah, I think just my personality allows me to engage in relationships and, and across my clinical career and other other areas of work i've done like being a camp counselor you know as an adolescent young adult i feel like i've always had a an interest in and a way of connecting with people that others are kind of turned off by or intimidated by or whatever it might be that makes them feel like i don't want to work with that person um and often that kind of mentality gets lumped lumped on adolescence but like I always liked the kid that everybody else said was tough. I was like, all right, send him over to me. I'll get to know him. I'll build a relationship. And, you know, it wasn't like a pride thing, like I can do this and nobody else can, but just like a sense that, you know, something about my personality allowed me to form those connections and listen to others. Even though I talk too much, I still am able to listen. Um, And I think, yeah, all of that is like a through line through pretty much everything that I do, both personally and professionally.
0: Great. I've also been told I talk too much, but I'm like, I'm also a therapist. So like I somehow balance it when I'm working.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've come to recognize that, especially in like meetings and things where I'm always like, all right, I'll go in like with a mental goal of I'm not going to talk in this meeting. And then I just can't help myself. I have something to say or some I can tell other people I have something to say and they're not saying it. So I'm going to be the one to say it. Um, and we can get into privilege and power because as a white cisgendered heterosexual male. I often am given the space to say those things when others may not. Um, and I've learned how to kind of use that in in hopefully productive, supportive ways. But I've also come to realize that partially, and so John, I wonder if it's true for you too, partially it's how I process by talking out loud. Some people are really internal processors and take it in and sit quietly and, um, others are external processors. So I think, you know, that, that, um, unevenness that sometimes happens in a space where somebody's talking a lot and somebody else isn't isn't necessarily an imbalance of power it's allowing for each person to process in the way that they need and then there's of course is risk that you know that i'm talking over somebody or i'm not making space for somebody else um, so that could be a rationalization but i think it's also real too
0: yeah no i think so i mean i my parents i think will say like they can't remember a time i wasn't talking so um <laughs> It just, like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know? But, yeah, it's interesting to, like, also be a therapist and be like, I'm listening, too. And, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: it's And I it's... can sit with silence. Like, I will often fill it, but I am comfortable. I've learned to be comfortable sitting with silence. And that's really important as a therapist and a therapy educator.
0: Yeah, I think, like, as a musician, too, like, the silence was, like, much more comfortable for me because I'm like, bring it on. I'll sit here. And I've had clients
1: where I'm like, we could just sit here. It's totally fine. Mm -hmm. I like when that silence is not misinterpreted by clinicians. This is nice to hear. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like giving clients that permission to be, to be quiet and also not letting them know that we are interpreting it as a behavior or like something they need to be penalized for, especially Scott, like you said, with adolescent community, like, Mm -hmm. okay, is this the only time you get quiet? Cool. Take it all. I'll take it too. That's fine. (laughs) We can both be quiet.
2: Yeah, we can look at silence as an active form of participation. Mm -hmm. And it's not often viewed that way. And maybe, you know, maybe coming from a music background helps with that because the rest and the spaces in between the notes is really what makes the music. If it's just a constant flow of notes, we don't get any sense of melodic structure or harmonic structure or movement or feeling really. Um, And so, as musicians we learn to like honor those spaces and those rests and that might you know be a part of what helps us do it as music therapists and you know other therapists but I think yeah shifting just like being able to shift that mindset to see silence in different forms sometimes it's avoidant sometimes it's resistance sometimes it's them processing and feeling and we need to give them that space and sometimes other things um, but it can be seen as an active form of participation
0: yeah Like a choice that they're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Speaking as a supervisor, you know what's the most difficult thing about being a supervisor, and then what's like something that you love about being a supervisor?
2: Um, I think some. I'll start go backwards. Something I love about being a supervisor. A couple things. I mean, one is the relational nature of it. I approach it from a very relational standpoint, not a not necessarily a hierarchical standpoint, although power dynamics within supervision are very real and um, can be minimized in various ways and exist differently within different versions and models of supervision. Um, But there's always some power differential, Um, but being able to like really form that relationship and create, you know, what's talked about as a supervisory alliance. You know I love connecting with people I love getting to know them I love understanding what's working for them what's challenging them. Um, And then um, being able to see from there, like the growth and development that happens. Um, I really enjoy that both you know in an educational phase when students are learning and in a professional phase. And then I think something that's hard about it. Well, one thing especially in the educational phase is allowing for their learning to unfold at their pace Um, you know there is an early stage i like developmental models of supervision i like developmental models in general but there are developmental models of supervision um, that talk about you know sort of how the supervisee might operate at that stage and how the supervisor can support them at that stage and what i like about developmental models is it acknowledges change over time and not necessarily a linear change, but that we move through different phases and at different points in time, the supervisee may need different things from me than they did at a different point in their development. Um, And so early on, they may need more from me, me to show more, me to explain more, me to answer more questions. Um, And then as they move along, they might start to differentiate from me, which is a good thing. But that can be a really hard stage for a supervisor where it's like, oh, now you're questioning me. Now you're challenging me. Now you're, thinking you know better than me, and perhaps you do. Um, but that's really hard for me to admit, and or any supervisor usually. And then at that stage also, it's usually when we're shifting to them kind of taking over and taking responsibility. And we have to like sit on our hands and bite our tongues and you know, let them struggle sometimes um, and navigate their way through it, knowing that they're supported and they can come and process it. Um, so I think that's, that's hard sometimes is, is getting out of the way.
0: Oh yeah, that's really tough. Like not jumping in when like, especially during a group, you're like, you got this, you do it. Like, Mm -hmm. this is how you learn. (laughs) That's really tough.
2: Yeah. I'm thinking what else, what else is, is good and challenging about supervision? Um, Well, I think just like, you know, along kind of along with that getting out of their way is like setting aside your own beliefs and your own biases and your own theoretical orientation. Because it's great when that aligns like literature and research around supervision, you know, shows that when supervising and supervisor are aligned in theoretical orientation, it's often better, but it's not necessary. And so when that's not present or that's starting to differentiate, that becomes hard because I have a certain way of understanding patients or understanding the work or thinking about you know, how change happens in therapy. And they may be coming to a different conclusion or coming at it from a different place. And that may not only be informed by their clinical experiences, but also who they are and all that they bring in their social cultural identities and therefore lived experience to the mix um, that's inevitably different than mine and um, being able to recognize and honor and even encourage those differences. And, and their um, you know, especially at the professional level when people are really starting to, and I'm al- often supervising people early in career at the professional level. So they're really starting to like stand on their own two feet, figure out who they want to be. They kind of know who they've become at that point, but are, are developing and growing and figuring out where they want to go from there. And even just like navigating career and job changes and, Um, you know, just trying again in a way to get out of their way by not imposing like my way of doing things, my way of thinking things, my beliefs, my biases onto them, which is easier said than done. So I say all that and I, as if I'm an expert at it and great at it, and sometimes I'm good at it and sometimes I'm not.
1: I think awareness is the first step to mastery. Definitely. (laughs) You know, once we, once we feel that we're, we want to be a certain way, we first have to envision it, baby.
2: Yeah, and Sarah, you said something in the intro that I wanted to sort of re I wanted to adjust a little, because you said something along the lines of all, we're all bad at things even until we get good at them. Mm. And I might, I would say that's true, but we could also add to it, we're all bad at things even when we get good at them.
1: Fair enough, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So, we, what do you think, at what point in your clinical career did you decide that supervision was also a calling?
2: Hmm. As it does for many, it, it got kind of thrust upon me by an ask from Drexel at the time, and I was working clinically, and um, the person who was formerly in my role—shout out to Flossie Rardi, um
0: yay call,
2: <laughs> called me up and you know said, "Hey Scott, I think you'd be a great supervisor for this student. I want to work with you." And you know, I, I now sit on the other side of that table, so I, I know all that was behind that that <laughs> ask at the time, all the all the feelings, and um, but it was also. For me at the moment, it was like an endorsement of something that like, maybe I hadn't thought about or thought I was ready for or recognized that I had something to offer really. Um, and so, you know, I said yes, cause I wanted to help out more so that I felt like I really had something to offer. I was like, oh, this sounds cool and I'm doing some cool work. And I think that'd be cool for a student to see and sure. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of my supervisory career part portion, but it just sort of continued from there and kind of grew. And my, you know, I think through the experiences, I I, I had positive experiences for the most part. And um, uh, along the way, I guess, became more increasingly more passionate about supervision and interested in learning more about it. Um, and then as I learned more about it, I learned there's not a lot of training for supervision, um, especially when I was starting out, uh, even the literature was was very thin and it's grown in the last 15 years, it's definitely grown, especially within music therapy and other creative arts therapies, but in, in counseling, psychotherapy across the board, there's just so many more resources for supervision than there were when I started doing it. So as I shifted into this role, uh, working at Drexel, it was sort of an opportunity to start to nurture others in in their kind of supervisory journey. And that started for me actually a little bit before I joined the faculty at Drexel because I was a clinical training director at a site running an internship program with multiple interns coming in from multiple schools and kind of overseeing other supervisors a little bit. So I think there is probably where it kind of pivoted to something. I was like, oh, I I could do this. This is something I'm into um, and something that is an area of need also. We need better training and supervision. We need better support for supervisors. We need better acknowledgement of the importance of supervision. Um, And then of course in academia, as you're a faculty member, you start to feel pressures to do presentations and write some things. And I had not really done much of that at all before entering the academic arena in this way. And so when I started to think about what what do I have to offer in those spaces um, thinking about supervision and, and what I had learned from my own experiences and, and was developing in terms of how to teach others. Um, it was a place where I started to do some presenting and talking and that's now rolled forward into some writing.
0: Cool. And full disclosure, Scott, you've been my group supervisor, my thesis supervisor, and I've also taken a supervision class with you because I've done clinical supervision for Drexel as well. So.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> done the whole cycle
2: (laughs) and very happy to have worked with you in all those spaces and so cool you know and that's another thing i i also love uh, like one of the things is like sort of the generativity of it and um the neat thing that happens with like somebody you've supervised then becoming a supervisor and getting to see that and also just like getting to see where people go in their lives and you know getting to witness the two of you and your your paths and journeys and and what you're doing here with this podcast now is so awesome. So that is something I I like too like getting to like, you know, have have a touch point in people's lives. I think something too that was hard when I switched, I was a full time clinician and I went from being a full time clinician to doing, you know, very limited clinical work and all of a sudden being an educator. And it wasn't a wholly intentional, I mean, it was a choice I made, but not a wholly, like well thought out, like this is the path I want to take. It was sort of a confluence of circumstances at the time. And so it was really hard for me, the shift from like feeling like I was directly helping people in need as a clinician to being an educator and helping people in a different way. And I attended a workshop early, like right when I was starting, um, And the guy kind of talked about that change and and his way of thinking about, um, yes, he was no longer supporting people in need as a therapist in the same way, but his way of sort of still feeling good about it was to recognize that by helping one student who's going going out and helping 50 patients or something, you know, and you're helping 10 of them, you're helping 500 patients, maybe not directly, but kind of indirectly and You know, that doesn't always sink in as deeply as like the direct connection with patients. I still miss that when I'm not doing the clinical work very much. Um, But I do, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, get some fuel from knowing that by supporting students and professionals, they're able to better support and provide hopefully better therapy to more and more people. And ultimately, that's the goal of all of it.
0: Yeah. That's so, I mean, I'm thinking of a time I was at a conference and like my supervisor was there and then my, my supervisee was there. And I think like they were also starting to supervise people. So it was like this family tree of supervisors. And it's so cool to just Mm -hmm. like see that, you know, just like, oh, wow, this is really cool.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I love that. We have supervisor meetings, you know, periodically. And it's, it's always fun to see like those connections happen or reconnections.
1: Yeah. I really like that thought of kind of just having your own values and, you know, what you find important mixed with what your supervisee finds important, just rippling out into the field and just being proud to be able to pass that on. Like you, like you said, Scott, it can be hard to toe that line of really influencing people's values and views, but when you're just able to nurture it and help it grow and seeing what a, inspiring direction it grows in that must be that must be neat as a supervisor
2: yes and it means you have to you know kind of get your ego out of the way a little bit too because i have to accept and sometimes i over at least just say like you're going to take what you want and you're going to leave what you want behind and that's okay that's okay with me i'm going to offer a whole bunch to you especially in a classroom environment and even there like yes we're doing assignments yes i'm giving a grade but in the end five years down the road maybe you remember two things I said and, and that's great. Those two things were impactful and somebody else remembers two different things. Um, and it's okay that you don't remember everything I said or that I'm not the most important person in your development. But, you know, I had, a, had a small piece in it along the way is yeah. is is exciting.
0: Switching gears a little bit, I guess it's a little mm-hmm. bit of switching gears. Uh, what do what, what are most people's reactions when you tell them what you do for a living and what would you love their reactions to be?
2: That is a good question. So you read the alphabet soup that comes after my name as we sometimes refer to it, MA for masters, MTBC for music therapist, board certified, LPC for let's professional counselor and ACS for approved clinical supervisor. So because I hold, you know, for me, those are an integrated professional identity. I have found, you know, how they all intersect and, and you know, live within me and how I practice. But it also means I kind of get to pick and choose how I represent myself professionally and in what spaces um, I do that. And so, um, you know, I'll just talk about like, for the for the sake of this question, I'll talk about it in like a social situation, like out at a bar or a concert or a restaurant and you meet somebody for the first time and they say, what do you do? I like go through a quick ch- self check-in, I think, like m- like m- like millisecond, like not like deep reflection, but a quick like, how do I want to answer right now? What do I feel like getting into? Cause I know if I say therapist, people get it right. That's more common. People are like, Oh, okay. You're a therapist. But then they're like, probably, I think they are, um, like, all right, cool. I don't want to say anything. Cause I don't want you to analyze me and tell me or the other way around. Let me tell you my life story. And can you fix me while we're having a beer at the bar? Um, which I'm like, no, talk to the bartender. That's what they're here for.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> but, um, but it's more understandable, like people get it when I say licensed professional counselor kind of similar outcome. I know when I say music therapist, the common, you know, a common responses, usually, oh, that sounds really cool. What is it? And then I have to explain it. And I have various ways of short explanations and long explanations of explaining what music therapy is um, But what I would hope their response would be has beca- has been becoming more frequent. I would say in the last five years or so of my career, um, more people seem to have awareness of, of what music therapy is or related fields like art therapy. Um, so more and more, I'll meet somebody. Um, like I was just at my son's soccer and was talking to another dad and he said, what do you do? We're going to know each other. And, you know, I said, I'm a music therapist or I teach and, I said oh my mother-in-law is was an art therapist and then she came to a game later and i met her and of course we knew some of the same people because Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. but um you know so like what what i hope would be the response of like actually knowing the field exists and what we do and that it's you know more than the simple way people often think about it um is becoming more more frequent but still i still have that moment of pause of like do i feel like so like you know, if it's late in the evening and I don't feel like explaining it, I won't lead with the music therapist identity because I know often there's an explanation that has to come with that. And sometimes I just don't, don't feel like getting into that. Um, but then in professional spaces, it has different functions, right? If I'm at a music therapy conference, I'm leading with that music therapist identity. If I'm at a counseling conference, I'm leading with my counselor identity. Um, if I'm at a general conference, I kind of make that choice. So yeah, different functions in different spaces. And then again, for me, it's all like integrated in me. So it feels a little funny to, to sometimes tease it all out and like individualize it. But I think it's also a luxury to get to like pick and choose. And sometimes I can just say I, I work at Drexel and I teach and people are like, OK, cool. So that's brought another layer of like being an educator. I can just name that and I even name what I teach. They'll usually ask. But sometimes that's sufficient. It's like, OK, that's easy enough.
0: I want to apologize for the dog noise behind the door she's now upset so if you if you hear her please let me know she's like crying her monster cry so
2: no i don't hear her.
0: never happened before no. but um here we go mm-hmm.
2: she's- this is part of what we've been living with through the pandemic mm-hmm. like all these things
0: i have to kick her out of session all the time because she's like barking at squirrels or like
2: do you have clients who like to see her though or ask to see her yeah Yeah. So that's another, like, you would never, you know, unless it's part of your practice to bring your pet to therapy and have, you know, maybe them, uh, um, approved as a, as a pet therapy animal or support animal, you would never bring your dog into the therapy session. And yet I've seen, you know, certainly in classroom, like people love pets, people love animals. It's an icebreaker. It's a, you know, tension breaker. It can be like this really cool tool that we don't usually have our, at our disposal. And or it can be a really big distraction and (laughs) complicate things.
0: Yeah. I think I was showing pictures of my dog to clients if they asked beforehand, Just because it is a good icebreaker. And it's like, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, I'm like a regular person.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Because of this dog, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, Scott, we've talked about your identity, how it can present in supervision settings and in like meetings and things you said, and even talking about how you can present yourself to the world when giving a job description. How about clinically your identity, as far as, you know, racial ethnicity, sexuality, all of that, how does that present for you in a clinical space?
2: Um, As I n- named earlier, I have, I hold a lot of identities, which in our society and our culture in, in the U S are very privileged identities. Um, And so that's something that I've certainly, I'm continually engaging with like a learning and growth process around that recognition and identification of that, and how um, there are ways that that identity, you know, those identities can be very, um, supportive and useful and even even at times leveraging the privilege I have to, to you know, in, in the form of allyship or other, other ways I can use that even within a clinical space, um, but also can create barriers and, and, you know, learning to be comfortable with who I am, knowing who I am and what those identities are, identifying them, and then being able to then be mindful of how that might be impacting the space, you know, what you know, as a male therapist alone, just the maleness of it, uh, there are certain layers that come into the space there that um, bring sometimes a sense of authority or authority. I'm six one as well. So I'm a tall male therapist. And so um, for certain clients, I have to be really mindful of that and how that, you know, what is their relationship to men um, or to authority figures, which often are in the form of men. And here I am trying to not be that, And, and yet, at the same time in our in our field of music therapy, it is largely female dominated, and I am in a minority in a way within the broader field, although there's still, you know, some of the the typical inequities around gender that play out in academic positions and higher admin positions and things but I go to a music therapy conference and, you know, there's a lot more females and identifying individuals and less male identifying individuals so it's this interesting dichotomy of being like in a privileged position in society, and sometimes in a minority position within the field and even the broader field of therapy, and then get what gets attached to kind of maleness and, um, you know, probably with that heterosexualness, but um, that in, in U.S. culture it's not seen, you know, not traditionally seen as a nurturing, like type of orientation um it's the you know people think of the mother right and the mother as the kind supporting nurturing and the father as the authoritative and this is you know very very binary very old school and not how it exists in the world today but i think some of those biases are still very very present and so assumptions that get made you know even you know good and bad about in in that way and like i was talking with students the other day too about who in both of their sentences, they wear they wear scrubs and one was a male who's actually a middle-aged male you know coming back kind of second career and one was a younger female identifying student and we just kind of talked about what do the patient what assumptions do the patients have the moment you walk into the room with nothing but scrubs on you know nothing no other identifier and you know the male is Inevitably seen as maybe a doctor or you know something else, and the female as a nurse or an assistant or something else, you know. And they're walking into that space holding the same responsibility and the same you know professional identity. Um, so all of that plays out. My whiteness, you know, I have done a lot of work in spaces where um, there are a lot of patients of of different races and ethnicities, um, different socioeconomic backgrounds than my own. Um, And again, it's, I I think it's, as I said, I feel like I have a strength for developing relationships, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like I have to be mindful and aware of what my whiteness, what my maleness, what these different identities elicit potentially for the patients and the clients I'm working with and how I can, you know, try to communicate that I try to be different than that norm while recognizing parts of me are that norm. And how I can try to work to develop a sense of safety and trust and therapeutic relationship, um, which sometimes has to happen, not sometimes, always has happened very intentionally. Um, And if you're not recognizing and holding some awareness of of these identities, and then having spaces outside of that clinical space to work with that. Um, And so whether that be in a supervision space, we actually um, formed a racial affinity group Um, a white racial affinity group for which a lot of people assume that means sort of white supremacy and talk around and sit around and talk about how great whiteness is, but it's actually quite the opposite. It's a space where we can uh, explore and dissect how our whiteness and white fragility and, you know, white tears and other all these ideas come into play. And so that we can do that work with white peers and not put that work on peers of color um, or other identities. Um, So finding those spaces to really both you know, do that work with the client sometimes where it, where it fits, where it's necessary in a, and, and in the service of them and their work. Um, and having the spaces to do that outside of the therapy space so that you can be better equipped to have awareness and insight of all that you're showing up as in that space and all that carries with it. And then, of course, there are always still, as much as we do the work, unconscious biases and mistakes that happen and, you know, um, things that I've worked hard at, like, you know, uh, adjusting to different uh, gender pronouns and making sure I'm using the right ones. Even when I know it, I feel like I've locked it in, I sometimes still make a mistake and misgender somebody and learning how to also own our mistakes and acknowledge them, I think has is continues to be a big learning curve for me, and many people and like, how do we go about that in a way that's like ultimately productive, um, and within a therapy context, because that's going to happen for that person, not just for me. And so my making that mistake and being able to talk about that or explore that in way in the therapy space might be therapeutically beneficial for them and as a byproduct for myself as well. There's probably a lot more I could say there. That's obviously a a big question. Yeah,
1: Um, No, that's that's, what what what, an amazing answer. I I love the, I'm losing my train of thought already. I love giving clients the ability to work through our mistakes as a therapist in such a safe way that we are not going to respond, you know, with that fragility or with that defensiveness. We're just going to give them a chance to like practice their or their um, their agency, you know, practice their standing up mm-hmm. for themselves and pronouncing themselves, I love it. That's a great yeah. thing that we can offer people.
2: Yeah, and I think for our, my student, I bring, come back to the educational side too, because all that same stuff comes up in the classroom and there's the same kind of power differential. In, in, and so that's another thing, like the power differential that's in, inevitably there in a therapy therapist, client, supervisor, supervisee, teacher, student. And then that sort of gets magnified by my privileged identities that put me in positions of power, even without those other roles. And so you put that together and it's like, I have a lot of power or what I would say is perceived power. Because there's often instances where, um, like with students, they don't realize that they actually have more power to affect change in the academic system than I do as a faculty member. It's a misperception that the faculty have the power. Yes, I have the power in the classroom to give you a grade and to allow you to pass or not. Um, but, you know, students to create that practice ground for what we were just talking about in the classroom too, I think is so valuable because it's going to play out in the clinical setting and the clinical setting it might be the patients who are misgendering them. And it often is, or the patients who are making a racist comment. How do we address that? How do we choose what and when to address within a therapy space is really complicated.
0: Absolutely. I agree. Um, <laughs> switching gears again, I guess I'm the queen of switching gears. How do you approach self care?
2: Um, I approach self care in a what I would say a broad way, and it's what I try to communicate to students and others as well. Sort of a reconceptualizing of self care, um, because you know, and part of that at the root is self compassion you know, starting from a place and a practice of self-compassion, um, as a form of self-care or as a root of self-care, but really just like trying to tear down the, a, the, the word, which we just throw around a lot, especially in an education phase, you know, you should do some self-care this weekend or make sure you're having self-care in your practice. And it's like, great, what the hell does that mean? And I'm super busy. And you just gave me 10 articles to read and a paper to write. And you're telling me do self-care. You're like giving me conflicting messages here. Um, But also to like just like take away that idea that self-care is only those like things we do for ourselves, like getting a massage or, you know, these big things that like I I wish I had an hour every week and the money to get a massage once a week, Mm -hmm. every week. It doesn't happen Um, when it can. That is a form of self-care. That's great. Um, when I can take a day off or a vacation, great. That can't always happen. So I think sometimes self-care becomes those things that feels unattainable. And then when somebody says, make sure you're engaging in self-care, it's like, well, I don't have time for that, but I broaden it to smaller things. A can be like five minutes going outside, taking some deep breaths, getting some fresh air, seeing the sun or moon or clouds. Um, but also things that don't always logically feel like self-care like getting an assignment done or getting something off of my to-do list it's like you know raking the leaves out in the backyard for some people that's therapeutic and feels good but for me it's something i've always hated like i'll shovel snow all day because you do it and you're done but like raking leaves it's never done there's always more leaves that come you like you don't have that sense of accomplishment so but it's like something that has to get done and when i look out at the yard every day and it's full of leaves and i'm like oh i really should do that when i get it done i feel better it's not i don't have that thought in the back of my head anymore and it creates space for other things um so so you know i talk to students about that like i know it doesn't feel like it but maybe not procrastinating on that paper and just getting it done even though i'm a huge procrastinator nothing wrong with procrastinating um side note but you know sometimes just like getting that thing off of your to-do list can be a form of self-care so i think like looking at the big things they're great Acknowledging the small things, figuring out what's right for you. There's also things that like some people use for self-care, like that YouTube video of, you know, meditative work. I'm like, that music is really grating for me and is actually really annoying and is not self-care for me, but for you, it might be. And that's great. So like figuring out what it is that's right for you and maybe having sort of in your back pocket, the big things that when you have time and money and ability to do great, um, like sort of like the big things, the middle level things and the small things. So if all you have is a few minutes, what what can I do to like just like ground myself or release something I've been holding on to? Um, and sometimes that means getting something unpleasant or seemingly unpleasant out of the way because then that's not on on my mind anymore and I can breathe and feel better.
0: I really feel that with like stuff in the house to do, <laughs> like, really feel it.
2: I also, I went to a mindfulness workshop once and I loved this, this idea. I don't always do it, but I love the idea of it. She suggested along with your to-do list, create a have done list. Because when you have a really long to do list, you often don't get to everything on that to do list in the day. And so you look at it, and although you've crossed things off, there's still things on the to do list and you can feel like I what have I even accomplished today. But yeah, you have accomplished all those things that you actually did do. And so if you kind of like create a separate list where you're not still looking at all the things on the to do list, but actually things that you have done, and that can you know, probably is better if you actually write it down and can look at it, but even just like a mental list to check and be like, Oh yeah, I still got a ton to do, but I actually did accomplish some things today. So I try to keep that in mind, even if I don't practice it all the time.
1: I like that idea. All right, Joanna, I'm going to steal the crown. Scott, it's time okay. for the hot seat question. All right. All right. Get, get ready for uh, controversy. What is a guilty pleasure of yours?
2: hmm a guilty pleasure um i don't know this doesn't feel like a big one but like it's probably it's like an uh, unhealthy thing that i do that kind of feels like a guilty pleasure like i often like snack and eat like late at night like i shouldn't be doing it it's not healthy for my body But it's like, I don't know, I'm just sitting around watching TV trying to unwind from the day and eat a bunch of crap, you know, late at night before I go to bed. And it feels, you know, I probably don't feel great the next day, but it feels good in that moment. And so I guess I would call that a guilty pleasure, because the next day I probably feel guilty about it, but it gives me pleasure in the moment. And that's more important.
1: Agreed. Agreed. As long as it's not cranberry sauce. I, 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 I was it. just like, going to say
0: mine is definitely. I get, I'm pretty sure I have a can of cranberry sauce. There there a like, can and a spoon? That like. Don't look at me. <laughs> like ready. Ready right now.
1: <laughs> I would love, Joanna, if in your screen on Zoom right now, you just picked up like a spoon and a, a limb can. <laughs>
0: I, she do can have, it? I, I do have a bowl full of um, pretzels that are shaped like bats. And... <laughs> Um, Spiderweb.
2: Like, so. like if you pan the camera down there's just like a slew of empty cranberry sauce <laughs> cans around your floor
0: i move and like a bunch of cranberry cans fall um here's another another hot seat question what's your favorite breakfast
2: um I've been really kind of obsessed with making kimchi fried rice at home um, with like leftover rice and kimchi. I'm like, I'm sure it's not like super authentic, but I do use like some authentic ingredients and put a fried egg on top. Um, So that's kind of been my favorite breakfast of late. Um, And my family doesn't love it because I use fish sauce and other smelly things when I make it. And they're like, ew, my son walked in and was like, ew, what is that? I was like, it's delicious, shush. but I also love to go out for brunch. Uh, we, we usually do that uh, on the weekends. And uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we couldn't go out at all, we started, I started making brunch at home like every Saturday or Sunday. And that was really nice. Um, so I love going out for brunch and like Eggs Benedict or uh, breakfast burrito, usually the savory things. But my wife has a big sweet tooth, so she'll get a sweet thing, I'll get a savory thing, and we, we share and I get a little bit of both.
0: A lot of great brunch places in Philadelphia, too. Mm-hmm. We're chock full of them.
2: I guess another guilty pleasure to go along with brunch would be a good a good Bloody Mary.
1: Nice. I can get on board with that, definitely.
0: I don't know if I've ever had one. I've never, tomato juice is always just like, eh.
2: So I don't like tomato juice. I will not drink tomato juice by itself. But I developed a love of Bloody Marys, and they have to be like a little sp- spicy a little horseradish a little hot sauce and pepper those are the keys and then it's like doesn't just taste like tomato juice and alcohol <laughs> <laughs>
0: um are there any resources that you feel like are important for our listeners to know about
2: um i was listening to that episode with mong shen um that was recently put up and and similar to what What she said, we know we we are friends and know each other and colleagues, Um, you know, I I really agree with how she put it that there's like so many resources available to people now. um, That it's hard to like name just one. Um, But what I would say in line with that is like there's also different ways of consuming those resources now. Uh, podcasts, for example, weren't prevalent and didn't exist. And it's like, there's all these different ways books on tape. So like, think about how you learn how you digest information, how you make sense of things. And it doesn't always have to be the same way every time. But, um, you know, I've never been a huge reader. And like to read. I do buy books and read them, but, um, you know, that was like the traditional way of academics, like digesting information. There's just so many other ways of getting it now, going to workshops, engaging with people, especially that's another kind of silver lining of the Zoom world we're now in is like so many more accessible workshops that are online that you can, you know, engage with people you maybe never would have and, and do some learning. Um, I guess I will give one, self-promotional plug for a music therapy specific resource and that is a book that was published this past year um co-edited by uh, melita belgraves and sung ah kim called music therapy in a cultural context a handbook for music therapy students and professionals it was written specifically for both to be applicable for students who are learning and professionals who are growing in their careers. It covers a different, a number of different topics um, related to um, multicultural factors in music therapy practice, as well as a uh, cultural humility and supervision chapter, which I was had the privilege of co-authoring with a, a close friend and colleague, um, Maria. So if you're looking for some additional resources around cultural culturally situated and responsive work and cultural humility within music therapy practice. Um, I think it's a great book.
0: Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, and then we have our final question. Um, unless we have another, I think we're on our final question, right? sir. Hey, we're final. We're final. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is our would you rather? Um, so would you rather always wear shoes one size too small or always wear clothes three sizes too big?
2: Three sizes too big for sure. Yeah. There's nothing like terribly uncomfortable about that. And in fact, that sounds really cozy to me. (laughs) And shoes that are too small sound awful and painful.
1: Yeah, this is definitely a softball. Uh, Sorry, I can pick another one. (laughs) No, I feel happy to actually not be a little brat and give an answer. Okay. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) clothes are too big.
0: (laughs) I, I definitely use the shoes too small as like a DBT example of radical acceptance. Like, like you have to, uh, these shoes don't fit you. They're not going to break in, you know, like they just, whatever the size doesn't fit you. Like you got to accept it. So that way you're like not in pain anymore from like blisters and stuff. Uh, so I would definitely choose this sh- the clothes three sizes too big. Cause you could do like belts and stuff, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: know. make it look good. It's amazing. <laughs> I think i'm wearing an extra large t-shirt right now so like same
1: yeah, no. extra large cardi extra large t that's how i roll <laughs> <laughs> scott would you like to plug anything
2: um i would just like to plug the importance of clinical supervision since that's where we started with this conversation with the lesson for today um and particularly in music therapy we don't have requirements for ongoing professional supervision. Once you become board certified, most other professions have some credentialing that goes along with it, like like counseling. And so um, I think professional supervision often gets devalued and that doesn't have to be really expensive private supervision that you're paying for. It can be peer supervision. It can be supervision you receive in your place of work, which is a great benefit. Um, But just like Supervision is not a bad thing. It's not something you need when you're failing or struggling. It's something that is always supportive, always helpful. And I really encourage every clinician to be engaged in supervision or at least, you know, have a quick resource for it when they find they have a time of need.
0: I agree. I also agree. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for being on with us today and talking with us. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you both for creating this space and a a, a great resource for uh, therapists to turn to.
0: Thank you. Thanks.
1: All right. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at TND Pod or on Twitter at TherapistsNDPod, all one word. Also visit our website, tndpodcast.com.
0: We have a Patreon. It's pretty cool. It's patreon.com slash tndpodcast. If you'd also like to email us um, just, you know, just because or to be interviewed on the show, our email is at gmail.com. That's therapists, plural, gmail.com. Sarah, is there anything you would like to plug?
1: All right, follow me on Instagram at Teletherapy with Sarah. I do weekly journal prompts on Fridays and visit teletherapywithsarah.com where you will see blog posts twice monthly that support professional millennials from working class backgrounds, also talking about anti-hustle culture, ex-Christianity, and living as somebody who does not need to be enamored with guilt and shame. Enjoy.
0: Great. Hey, I don't well, I don't have as great right of a away. plug as that. Yeah. But uh, my website is (laughs) orianatherapy.com. That's O-R-I-A-N-N-A therapy.com. I I also have uh, an Instagram. That's orianatherapy. And uh, check it out. Until next time.
1: (laughs) We are are your your therapist next next door. door.
0: Bye. (laughs)